Now, in these classes, as almost everyone knows who has been watching these classes, but there are some who perhaps have joined us who are not familiar with what we have been teaching in these classes. In these classes, we've been studying the Bible's teachings regarding the duties of Christian fellowship. <clears throat> and we've been using a treatise written by John Owen. It is a very brief treatise, but it gives us our framework and guide for these studies. And presently, we are working through section two of Owen's treatise, and that section is entitled Rules for Walking in Fellowship with Respect to Other Believers. And two Lord's Days ago, we completed our study of rule number three in this second section, and that rule states the following. Believers must strive and fight with determination in every legitimate way by their actions and sufferings for the purity of the ordinances, for the honor, liberty, and privileges of the congregation, and in order to help others in the face of all opponents and adversaries. And then I asked the question two Lord's Days ago, who are our opponents and adversaries, and how do we help each other in the face of such opponents? We learned in our studies that first and foremost, the Christian's primary opponent and adversary is the devil. But we also examined the scriptures, and this is a brief review, and saw that there are also individuals who actively oppose Christians. And such individuals, we saw from the Bible, are, first of all, religious men and women, not Christians, but very religious, who are opponents and adversaries to Christians. And secondly, we saw last week, excuse me, two Lord's Days ago, that there are materialistic men and women who are opponents and adversaries of Christians. And then thirdly, we observe from the Bible that the world is an opponent and adversary to Christians. And then we considered two Lord's Days ago some specific ways in which we can help other believers in the face of such opponents. We noted, first of all, that we help our brethren by cultivating compassion for them. Secondly, we saw from the Bible, we help our brethren by praying for them. Thirdly, we help our brethren by taking responsible actions on their behalf. And fourthly, we help our brethren by defending and not deserting them. And now we come to some new material, and I have a very brief postscript to that last message of two Lord's Days ago. There are two additional specific ways by which we can help our brethren as they face their adversaries. And so fifthly, we help our brethren by undertaking practical actions for them. This is different than what I had said previously about the matter of taking responsible actions for them, such as urging Paul to leave one city to go to another so that he would not be killed. This is different. I'm calling it practical actions. And I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17. <clears throat> 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17. 
We help our brethren by undertaking practical actions for them. <clears throat> First John three seventeen, but whoso has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and shuts up his compassion from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither with the tongue, but in deed and truth. And now turn to James chapter 2 and verse 15. James chapter 2 and verse 15. <clears throat> if a brother or sister be naked and in lack of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them the things needful to the body, what does it profit? So you see, when you look at 1 John three seventeen and 18, and James two fifteen and 16, we are as Christians to help our brothers and sisters in Christ in practical ways when they have need. They may be impoverished due to matters totally out of their control. They may have been persecuted on the job site by a boss and then wrongly relieved of their work, fired or laid off, but wrongly and righteously. And now they have real practical earthly needs. Well, John is telling us, James is telling us, it's not enough to say, I'll pray for you. We should, of course, pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. But we need at times when we can help them with practical actions. So that's the fifth way in which we help our brethren when they face adversaries and opposition here in the world. But then sixthly, we may, at times, it may happen that we will be called upon to help our brethren by the ultimate sacrifice for them. So turn in your Bibles back to 1 John chapter 3 again, and we will read verse 16. First <clears throat> John 3, verse 16. Hereby we know love, because he, the Lord Jesus Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And so we see from John's words here in this verse that sometimes a Christian may be called upon to give the ultimate sacrifice on behalf of a, a brother or sister who is facing opponents, adversaries here in the world. And so that's not a common reality, but it can be, and we should have a mind and a heart and a will that is ready to do just that. Lay down our lives for our brethren because the Lord Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. But now we move on in John Owen's treatise to the next rule, rule number four in this second section of his treatise. And rule number four is very important, just like the other rules we have been considering. Rule number four is this. Believers must maintain an unremitting care and effort to preserve unity. 
both in general and in particular. I'll read that rule again. Believers must maintain an unremitting care and effort to preserve unity, both in general and in particular. So what Owen is saying here is constant care and effort must be exerted by every Christian in order to preserve and foster unity. And this must be done, Owen stated, both in a general way and in particular ways. Sometimes it's easy to speak in general terms about things, but we don't get down to the nitty-gritty details and so we don't accomplish anything. So Owen understood both generally in the church, but also very specifically in our relationships, we are to constantly care to promote and to preserve unity amongst the brethren. The relationships between members of the church should always be in our mind and heart, as well as the general unity within the church. Unity, John Owen wrote, is the main aim and the most appropriate fruit of love. It's very succinct. I'll read it again. Unity is the main aim and the most appropriate fruit of love. Where there is sincere love between the brethren in the church, there will also be genuine unity. This is Owen's concern. So now let's consider, first of all, this morning, the nature of biblical unity. And Owen gives us three aspects of biblical unity. We'll begin with number one. Owen wrote, there is a spiritual unity. That's what we're going to now consider. The nature of biblical unity, there is a spiritual unity. This spiritual unity is wrought by the Holy Spirit, who indwells believers, and this spiritual unity is birthed and nurtured by the believer's union with and communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the work of the Holy Spirit and the Lord Jesus Christ, Christians can have real unity with other Christians who are members of the same church, as well as with other Christians who are in other true churches scattered throughout the world. This is what we're speaking of, a spiritual unity. Turn in your Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll read verses 1 through 6, where we see this reality of spiritual unity. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. <clears throat> Ephesians 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beseech you to walk worthily of the calling wherewith you were called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, giving diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, 
even as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And there we stop our reading of Ephesians chapter 4. Notice from this passage, first of all, Paul exhorts and urges Christians to live according to their calling as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's in verse 1. He exhorts the Ephesian Christians as the prisoner of the Lord, reminding his readers, the people in Ephesus, reminding them that he has, by the grace of God, been faithful to Christ through the years. And even now, as one who has been imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, he had walked worthily of his calling. And therefore, you see, he had credibility and great warrant to exhort these Ephesian Christians as he did in this letter. Paul was not a novice. He was not a novice who was exhorting them, but he was an experienced saint. He had credibility and great warrant to speak to them as he did. Paul would have us remember and contemplate all that the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us in his life, death, and in his sovereign and gracious calling of us out of sin and darkness. As believers, we have fellowship with Christ. We are the recipients of eternal life as believers, and therefore we should long and purpose to live worthily of our calling as Christians. And with such blessings come responsibilities. That's what Paul is driving at here in this passage. You are to walk worthily of your calling. You have a great privilege as a Christian disciple, but you also now not only have blessings, but responsibilities. So Paul exhorts and urges Christians to live according to their calling as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice, secondly, from this passage in verse 2, Paul then specifies the graces which should mark our living as Christians. Humility of mind, gentleness, patience, and forbearance are to be realities, not just theories, not just truth on the shelf, as it were, but they're to be realities in our lives, and thus in our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. Humility is to mark every true disciple of Christ in the church. Humility as opposed to pride, arrogance, defensiveness, and touchiness. Humility must characterize the Christian's heart, speech, and life in his fellowship with other believers. When that is there, you see, there will be peace. There will be unity. But furthermore, gentleness or meekness, as opposed to harshness, must be maintained in the Christian's relationships. 
Again, in his words and in his deeds, his relationships with other believers. Patience is the third grace that is mentioned here, or long-suffering, instead of annoyance and irritability. Patience and long-suffering must guide the believer's reactions and words in response to other Christians in the church who have, like you do and like I do, many weaknesses, many idiosyncrasies, many foibles, many sins. Patience, long-suffering is needed. And again, where that grace is manifested in your life, in my life, in our lives together, there will be peace, there will be unity. Forbearance, this is a little different. It is endurance as opposed to abandoning and giving up on another believer in the church. It's easy to have that infect your heart, that that attitude of wanting to give up. When you are laboring with a brother or sister in Christ, a friend in the church, and there doesn't seem to be much progress or very little progress in that particular Christian's life, and you might feel like giving up. But no, we are to be enduring, not abandoning. We must be this way towards others in the church. And you see again, when we are forbearing with one another, there will be peace, there will be unity. But then lastly, but very importantly, perhaps in one way most importantly, love is mentioned by Paul. Principled love, affectionate love, must reside in the heart of the Christian as he seeks to forbear, in particular, with his brothers and sisters in the church, doing good to each one whenever possible. All of these graces are essential if there is to be spiritual unity within the church. But now notice from the Ephesians 4 passage, thirdly, Paul exhorts believers to diligently preserve spirit-wrought unity in the church in the context of peace. I've already mentioned peace several times, but that is what he's doing in verse 3. When Christians in the church are living lives that show forth with clarity by the power of the Holy Spirit, when they're showing forth these particular graces, which we've just reviewed from verse 2, then, as I've said, unity among the brethren will be realized. This unity is a precious gift, which must be diligently preserved through the spiritual and practical labors of every Christian in the church. Cannot overemphasize that. Paul is using words that are very strong and powerful here in the original language. We are to diligently labor to preserve spiritual unity in the church. So we must engage ourselves in spiritual and practical labors to do that. So first of all, under this heading, Christians must exert themselves. And you might be surprised about what I'm going to say. I hope not. But Christians must exert themselves by reading their Bibles daily, believing everything the Scriptures proclaim from Genesis to Revelation, 
trusting the Lord Jesus Christ alone, who is revealed in the scriptures. If we are to preserve, diligently preserve, spirit-wrought unity at Trinity Baptist Church, we as individual members of the church, Christians in the church, we must exert ourselves, we must be diligent in reading our Bibles daily. And I don't mean just for two minutes or five minutes, and I don't mean just reading a brief devotional. You need to be reading your Bible daily because that is the food that God will give to you to nurture your soul. And that is the spiritual guidance God will give you to lead you continually in the pathway that leads to eternal life. And that is the food that will instruct you how to live in this world and how to live with one another in the church. That is the word that will then show you how to foster true spiritual unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. So that is the first matter that you should undertake. You must exert yourself by reading your Bible daily, believing everything in the scriptures, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. But secondly, Christians must exert themselves by laboring in prayer, asking God to preserve and prosper this spiritual unity in the church. Do you believe that when you pray, the living God actually hears your prayers? You should believe that. Do you believe that he can and does answer prayers? He may not answer your prayers immediately. He may not answer them as you would like them to be answered. But God is a God who not only hears prayers of his believing people and sinners who turn to him, but he is a God who answers prayers. Do you believe that? You should believe that. And you should be laboring in prayer, asking God to preserve and prosper spiritual unity in Trinity Baptist Church. Thirdly, Christians must exert themselves by exhorting and admonishing one another so that spirit-wrought unity in the church is strengthened. We are to encourage one another in the pathway of peace. We're to encourage one another to indeed preserve unity. And I'll get to some specifics a little later on this morning. Now, when I say all of these things, I'm not aware of disunity at Trinity Baptist Church. I'm not aware of infighting or any such thing. I bless God. I don't believe that's the case at all. Hasn't been for decades. So no one should be thinking, well, is there some problem amongst members of the church that the pastors are aware of? No, this is medicine from the word of God to keep us healthy spiritually. Well, when Christians exert themselves in such ways as I've just mentioned, they, are, they will diligently preserve unity within the church. And such unity among believers in the church promotes peace in the church. And then such peace likewise promotes unity in the church. This unity and peace in the church glorifies our God and Savior. And sometimes that's what you need to remind yourself. 
You need to say, no, peace and unity in the church glorifies my God and Savior. I will do what will promote and preserve peace and unity. But now from this passage in Ephesians 4, notice in the fourth place, Paul reminds believers that spirit-wrought unity among Christians in the church is a reflection of who God is and what God has done in the redemption of sinners. He reminds believers that spirit-wrought unity among Christians in the church is a reflection of who God is and what God has done in the redemption of sinners. We see that in verses 4, 5, and 6. Seven times in these three verses, 4, 5, and 6, seven times Paul used the word one. Clearly, Unity was being emphasized by Paul as he reflected upon the being of God and the work of God in saving sinners. And notice that as Paul exhorted the Ephesian Christians to preserve unity in their midst, he specifically brought the triune God before their minds. He stated, there is one spirit, one Lord, and one God and Father of us all the Trinity. Paul understood that the Spirit is not the Lord Jesus Christ, and that the Lord Jesus Christ is not God the Father, and God the Father is not the Holy Spirit. There are three distinct persons within the Trinity, and yet there are not three gods, but one God. And although there are distinctions among the persons of the Godhead, yet there is no disunity within the triune God. There's no disunity. And therefore, Christians who are distinct and different from one another must nevertheless reflect their God in their relationships with each other within the church. There must be biblical unity among Christians within the church, a unity which manifests that there is one body and one hope of your calling and one faith and one baptism. You see how Paul takes this theology of who God is and brings it down to apply it to the Christians in Ephesus and to us today, practical lessons about this matter of unity, spirit-wrought unity. Now, such biblical spirit-wrought unity becomes a tangible reality in the church when Christians sincerely love one another and labor earnestly to preserve and promote such unity. And therefore, we must mortify, by way of practical application, we must mortify our sins by the power of the Holy Spirit and plead with God to enable us to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit in our lives and relationships to deal death blows to your remaining sin of pride, which always disrupts or destroys spiritual unity in relationships, 
It always does that. In order to deal death blows to your remaining sin of pride, you must remind yourself of what you once were prior to becoming a Christian. You must then remind yourself of what you presently are as a saint with much remaining sin. And you must meditate upon what the scriptures teach regarding what you will one day be in glory. And when you think on those three crucial realities, what you once were before you became a Christian, what you are as a saint, but with much remaining sin, and what you will one day be in glory by the grace of God, those thoughts should humble you. They should encourage you in one sense, because you understand what Christ has done for you, and it should help you to mortify the sin of pride. You must remember that the gift of eternal life and the forgiveness of all your sins is due totally and exclusively to the life and the bloody propitiatory death and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by contemplating those gracious realities, the humbled Christian will indeed persevere, diligently persevere, in mortifying his remaining sins of pride and arrogance, defensiveness and touchiness in his relationships with his brethren in the church. The meek and gentle Christian will not insist upon his rights or her rights, but rather that meek and gentle Christian would rather take wrong than inflict wrong on another. The patient and forbearing Christian will not be easily provoked, but will be very long-suffering. Pride, however, is not the only sin which undermines, fragments, and destroys spirit-wrought unity among Christians within the church. There are sadly many such sins which will do this very demonic, diabolical work in the midst of any Christian church, amidst any relationships within the church. What are some of those other sins besides pride? Gossip, murmuring, backbiting, those three sins among the brethren will certainly disrupt the unity of the church. And therefore, as with pride, so with gossip and murmuring and backbiting, those sins must be mortified. They must be spiritually killed, put to death by the work of the Spirit, taking practical steps to do so, praying, Lord, keep me from this sin of gossip. Help me to guard my heart and mind and tongue. Help me to guard my fingers as I text message or as I post things on Facebook or as I send emails. Help me, Lord, to not be a gossip, to not murmur, to not backbite among the brethren. Suspicion of others is another sin that produces and disrupts unity, produces disunity, disrupts unity unrighteous judging of others within the church 
will also fragment and destroy spirit-wrought unity in the church. Envying others when someone in the church is promoted in some way, not in a carnal, worldly way, but somehow more notice is given to that brother or that sister because of what they have done in the church or what they're doing in the way of ministry in the church, that person gets a little attention and you are jealous and envious. That sin of envy in the heart actually is the beginning of disunity in the church and it must be mortified. An unforgiving spirit toward other Christians within the church having a heart that is not forgiving, forgetting what God has forgiven you in Christ, that unforgiving spirit will also produce disunity within the church. Unloving behavior toward other believers in the church also produces disunity. When Christians within a church labor diligently to mortify all these sins, and God grants the gracious gift of peace and unity, then unlooking, unconverted people will behold in such a church, even though they will not understand it or be able to really explain it, they will behold in such a church spiritual unity. It's something they don't see out in the world. They don't see it in the workplace. They don't even see it in their own families, their extended families, their own particular family in their own household. They see bickering and fighting. They see all sorts of division. And so, when God enables us as individual Christians to mortify these sins, these deeds, gossip, suspicion, envying, an unforgiving spirit, unloving behavior, pride, then you see there will be true unity preserved and fostered, and onlooking unconverted people will see this and they will glorify God. And many times they will wonder, why are they like this? And even be drawn not only to ask that question, but to want to hear what makes you different. Want to hear even the gospel. And the Lord can use it to bring them to life eternal through faith in Christ. But now turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. So again, we're looking at the nature of spiritual unity. And we've considered the passage from Ephesians 4, but now we come to Philippians 2 and verse 1. If there is therefore any exhortation in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any tender mercies and compassions, make full my joy that you be of the same mind, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, doing nothing through faction or through vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, each counting other better than himself, not looking each of you to his own things, but each of you also to the things of others." There we stop our reading of the passage. Notice from Paul's words in verse 1 
that there is a vital connection between the fellowship of the Spirit and the thinking and living of the Christians in the church in Philippi, as he continues his words in verses 2, 3, and 4. There's a vital connection between the fellowship of the Spirit and the thinking and living of the Christians in the church. Because Paul longed that these dear saints in Philippi would experience the fellowship of the Spirit as well as tender mercies and compassions, he told them what to do. And he told them what not to do. And it's always good when a preacher is telling you from the Bible, this is what you should do, this is what you should not do. Our salvation is not earned by what we do or what we not do. But once we are Christians by the grace of God, God tells us how we should live, what we should do, what we should not do. Paul did that. Well, notice, first of all, from this Philippians 2 passage, Paul exhorted these Christians in verse 2 to be of the same mind, and then once again to be of one mind. Commentators debated whether Paul meant something different when he then said of one mind. Did he mean something different, same mind of one mind? Some are not sure. Some think maybe he meant something different. Some say, no, he's really just repeating himself using slightly different words. And I've come down to that conclusion that he is really speaking the same thing. I'm not trying to be funny there, but the same mind and of one mind. One commentator wrote this concerning these words. True spiritual unity, as opposed to mere outward uniformity, depends upon a holy unanimity of thought. Christianity is, first of all, a condition of mind. Hence, They cannot work together harmoniously unless they share the same disposition of mind. So this commentator is basically pointing out something that I've said on other occasions. Christianity indeed does come to the mind. It should not just reside in the mind. Bible truth has to come into you through the mind and then down into the heart, affecting your heart, affecting your life, affecting everything. But the mind, you see, is not bypassed. And that is what this commentator was noting. True spiritual unity, as opposed to mere outward uniformity, depends upon a holy unanimity of thought. Christianity is first a condition of mind. Your thoughts matter. What you believe matters. And therefore, biblical doctrines and truth do matter. Theology matters. There can be no genuine spiritual unity in the church if there is not a doctrinal unity. And therefore, the doctrines of the Bible must be taught. They must be preached. They must be believed. They must be loved. They must be practiced by all of the members of the church. Christians who are members of a local church must have the same mind regarding biblical truth. For, as Amos wrote in Amos 3, how can two walk together except they be agreed? But secondly... 
Paul exhorted these Philippian Christians to have the same love, not only the same mind, but in verse 2, the same love. True spiritual unity within a church thrives when the members of that church have the same love for one another. Paul was not stating that every Christian within a church will equally love all the other members of the church. He wasn't stating that. He understood those realities of differences. But nevertheless, there must be true, spirit-wrought, biblical love, one member for all of the members in the church. But there's not going to always be an equal love. Our relationship with others within the church depend upon many factors. The number of members within a particular church will affect how well you get to know one another. The ages of the different members of the church will affect relationships. Older folks will indeed be speaking to older folks because they probably have been friends in the same church for decades. They shouldn't neglect the younger members, but it will be natural for older members to be more close to other fellow older members. So the ages of different members affect the relationship. Whether one is married in the church or not married will affect your relationships, friendships within the church. Whether a married couple has no children or a married couple has seven children, that will affect their relationships. Those who have children and use the nursery in the church and those who are married who do not yet have children, they're not using the nursery. There's not going to be that additional contact. There will not be the development of other aspects of the friendship. The physical location of the homes of the members of a church will affect their relationships at times. The personalities of the various Christians in the church will affect their relationships and friendships. But notwithstanding all of these differing factors, Paul exhorted all of the Christians in the church in Philippi to have the same love for each other. The love that Christ has shown to you. We are to have that same love for each other. When you think upon the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for yourself, when you contemplate that love, so it's not just a passing thought, but you think and think and think, you contemplate the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for yourself, that will then affect the way you love the others in the church. So the same love, you see, it's to be a love like Christ has shown to you. And what is that love like? The love of the Lord Jesus Christ for you as a believer is, first of all, a gracious love. Unearned, undeserved, you didn't work for it, you didn't merit it. You really weren't even looking for it. And yet God in Christ, by his spirit, through the word, brought the truth to you, the law of God to you. You saw the reality of your sins. He then showed you the fact that Jesus Christ is the perfect savior of sinners. 
And when you think about his graciousness and saving you, that should affect the way you love your brethren in the church. But the love of the Lord Jesus Christ is also immutable. It never changes. You may at times feel like the love of Christ toward you as a believer has changed. He may withdraw himself from you for a season for good and wise reasons to instruct you. But that doesn't mean his heart and his love has changed. It has not changed. And so your love for your brethren in the church, it will never be perfect. It will never be perfectly immutable. But you should be saying to yourself, my love for all of the brothers and sisters in the church, it should be a love that is unchanging. It should be a love that, though I feel like it waxes and wanes, I, I want it to be like the love that Christ has for me. I want to be having a love for my brothers and sisters that is not changing in the sense that it never goes away, never decays. If anything, it changes in the sense of increasing and deepening. But Christ's love for you as a sinner, as a Christian, is immutable. It is faithful. Your love towards your brethren is to be faithful. Christ's love for you is tender. Your love for your brethren is to be tender. Christ's love for you is generous. You are to be generous in your love towards your brethren. You should have no problem in loving your Christian brethren in the church purposefully, sincerely, earnestly, and affectionately as you think about how Jesus Christ loves you. And if you're listening to this and you're not presently a Christian... You need to spend time in the Gospels, reading the Gospels in the Bible, and observing this love of Christ for sinners. And then you need to ask him, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner, and cause me to know and experience the reality of your love for me. That's what you need to do. If you're not presently a Christian, you need to seek the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to seek him in his word. Seek him in prayer. You need to go to the Gospels. You need to observe who he is still in glory. And in the hour that follows, when the word of God is preached, that's what you need to be praying. Lord, reveal yourself to me. Show me my sins. Show me yourself. Show me your love. That's what you need to do. But thirdly, in this Philippians 2 passage, Paul urged the Philippian Christians to be of one accord, or one might say of one purpose. Literally, what Paul wrote was that the believers were to be like-souled, of one soul, as it were. They were to have a united purpose of will to live together in the church in spiritual unity, with all of their own personal redeemed humanity. They were to love one another with one accord, one purpose, with their minds, with their hearts and affections, and with their wills and their actions. That is what I believe Paul meant there in verse 2, when he urged the Christians in Philippi to be of one accord or of one purpose. We are to do the same in order to have spiritual unity. 
But fourth, from this passage in Philippians 2, Paul admonished the believers to shun two specific sins and to put on two specific graces in verses 3 and 4. The two specific sins to be shunned are very common. First is selfishness, expressed in the words faction or selfish ambition there in Philippians 2. The second sin, again, is this sin, pride, expressed in the words conceit or vainglory. If these two sins, selfishness and pride, dominate the heart and life of a professing Christian or professing Christians within a church, spiritual unity will be impacted negatively to one degree or another. For the sins of selfishness and pride are fully antagonistic to the realities of spiritual unity, peace, and love within the church. In Proverbs 13.10, we read, it makes it very plain, By pride comes only contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. By pride comes only contention. It's an awful sin, which we again need to be killing by the grace of God, the Spirit of God. And in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15, we read these words, For the love of Christ constrains us, because we thus judge that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all that they that live should no longer live unto themselves, but unto him who for their sakes died and rose again. You see what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5. He said that Christians are those who should no longer live unto themselves. They should no longer be selfish, they should no longer be thinking just of how is this affecting me, but rather live unto Christ who died and rose again for you. And when you keep that in your mind and heart, that Jesus Christ died for me on the cross and he received the wrath of God for all of my sins, including my sins of selfishness, and he now has been raised from the dead, and he sits in glory on high, ever interceding for me. I will not want to live for myself. Selfishness will be seen to be hideously ugly, as it truly is, along with the sin of pride. These two sins, Paul admonished the believers in the Philippian church to shun specifically pride and selfishness. But then two specific and necessary graces, which Paul admonished the believers to put on. What were they? Self-denial, expressed in the words of verse 4. Not looking each of you to his own things, but each of you also to the things of others. He was exhorting them, admonishing them to be self-denying Christians in the church. What is the second necessary grace? Humility, which we've seen before already this morning. Humility expressed in the words, lowliness of mind, each counting others 
better than himself. Verse 3. These two graces, self-denial and humility, oppose and war against the sins of selfishness and pride. These two graces are absolutely essential for the Christian life and for spiritual unity in the church. Now I would like you to turn to Matthew 16 and verse 24, where we see this crucial reality of self-denial. Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said unto his disciples, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Self-denial, not looking each of you to his own things, self-denial is foundational to being a genuine Christian. And it is also foundational for genuine spiritual unity in the church. Turn now to Matthew 18 and verse 1. Matthew 18 and verse 1. In that hour came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called to him a little child, and set him in the midst of them, and said, Truly I say unto you, except you turn and become as little children, you shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There we stop our reading of this passage. The disciples were arguing about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Certainly a discussion which had pride at its root. Can you imagine watching Jesus, listening to Jesus, following Jesus, hearing his instruction, and then arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? It really was so sinful. And the Lord Jesus then placed a little child before the disciples and told them that unless they humbled themselves and became as little children, they would not even enter the kingdom of heaven, let alone be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You see, humility is absolutely essential for the Christian life and for spiritual unity in the church. John Calvin commenting upon Philippians 2, 3, this very passage, and the essential need for the grace of humility in the lives of Christians within the churches, he wrote the following. Paul gives a definition of true humility. When everyone esteems himself less than others. Now, if anything in our whole life is difficult, this above everything else, is so. Hence, it is not to be wondered if humility is so rare a virtue. For, as someone has said, everyone has in himself the mind of a king by claiming everything for himself. See, here is pride. Afterwards, 
from a foolish admiration of ourselves arises contempt of the brethren. And so far are we from what Paul here enjoins, that a man or woman can hardly endure that others should be on a level with him. For there is no one that is not eager to have superiority. End quote. See what Calvin is saying? It is a rare, it's a rare virtue, humility. We all by nature want to be our own king. We want everyone else to bow before us. And he said, this is not what Paul is stating in Philippians 2. We are to esteem others better than ourselves. And we can only do that with the grace of humility. Well, surely we always in every season of life need to remember and apply these truths in our lives as Christians and as church members. But I would like to close by suggesting that we especially need to remember and apply these truths regarding spiritual unity to our lives when we meet, God willing, in the future, on the Lord's days, here in this building, after this coronavirus lockdown has been lifted. As your pastors, we are aware that there are differing views among the members of Trinity Baptist Church and the friends of the church concerning what is wise and what is proper in response to this coronavirus situation. Some brethren are very conservative in their thinking and approach to this virus situation. Other brethren are on the other end of the spectrum concerning this virus situation. And God's word is instructing us and reminding us that spiritual unity, peace wrought by the spirit of God, and love in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ among the members and friends must be paramount in your thinking, in your heart, in your actions, in your words, in your reactions, the remaining sins of selfishness and pride must be mortified. The graces of self-denying love, humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance must be put on by the power of the Spirit. That's what we need, brethren. Well, I think this is absolutely ridiculous, the way this government's handling this. We should have been not in lockdown ever. Somebody else says, I don't think the lockdown should be lifted at all yet. It should go on for another two months. And then there's others in between. So what are you going to do? Stand for what I believe. No. Humility. Love. Selflessness. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ who lived for you, died for you, who now lives for you. By his grace and power, we can have true spiritual unity and peace at Trinity Baptist Church now and into the future. So let's close in prayer. Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit to write these truths that we've studied today upon our minds and hearts, 
Give us oneness of mind and heart and life that we would glorify you in our midst. Receive our prayers as we come in Jesus' name. Amen.